Hey everybody, how you doing? And welcome to episode number 180 of the John Riley Project. This is a podcast all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We're broadcasting as we always do from the fabulous JRP Podcast Studio here in Poway, California, 92064. We got a whole bunch in store for you today. You know, we're gonna um, we're gonna be talking about the debates, the presidential debates. We're going to be talking about some local news updates. I want to get into this topic of public, what a public servant really is. I kind of got in a little bit of trouble in some conversations on Facebook with one of our local city council members, and I just want to have some fun discussing that uh, in particular. But man, those debates last night—if you know how they have those funny drinking games with the debates, like if you know it's like debate bingo, and if someone says a certain word, you got to drink. I mean, if if you took come on man as one of the uh one of the words in the in the debate uh, bingo game, man. You probably have a wicked hangover today. But, you know, if you if you pick something like, I don't know, national debt, you're probably stone cold sober and uh, having a good Friday as we get going. But yeah, the debate last night was um, it was a lot more civil. Right. You know, they you know, they weren't interrupting each other. I think Trump was a lot more well behaved, but still it was really kind of empty so we're going to we're going to really break it down and i encourage your thoughts on this this is a live stream we're live streaming on facebook and on youtube so by all means let me know your thoughts and comments things that you saw in the debate last night that you thought were awesome or things that you thought were horrible or any kind of interesting comments i'll read them on the air we'll talk it through uh but um i i have a number of thoughts and and i'm going to definitely break it down um but just a couple other little updates before we get started. I finally dropped off my ballot. I don't know why it took me so long. It was sitting on my desk for a few days, but went down to the postal annex here in Poway, right next to the Target. And uh, the, they have a registrar of voters official, like right there. It's it's like a legit official drop location for our ballots. So I did that yesterday. And the guy working there, very friendly, you know, a registrar of voters person. Um, then I went in the back talking with my buddy Dennis. And, you know, he's a big Dodger fan. And I owe him lunch because the Dodgers beat the Padres in the divisional series. But then we agreed that we were going to go double or nothing on the World Series. So I got the Rays. He's got the Dodgers. And I got the Rays because they got former Padres, um, Hunter Renfro and Manuel Margot. So and they're the little guys. So I'll, I'll take the underdog against the big, bad Dodgers. And so, we, yeah, we're double or nothing on our bet. That'll be fun. But if you get a chance to go in there to the Postal Annex and Poway next to Target, uh, Dennis is a great guy. So I always talk about him uh, because I think he's a good guy, you know, and I, I rent a mailbox there. So I go in, check my mail, you know, a few times a week. But he's a good man. Um, I just also want to give you an update on Wednesday, October 28th. We're going to have a guest and it's going to be Poway author Alex Mathers, and this is his book, uh, Building Firm, um, Financial Independence with the Right Mindset. So, yeah, you know, I, like I've said, we want to, you know, we talk politics a lot, and this is the political season, but I want to get to more of this kind of content about improving your personal life, improving your business life. And, you know, if you on the back cover, it was great. It, it, he says, are, are your financial choices helping you stay on the right path to long-term happiness, right? So yeah, this podcast is all about life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
And good financial management is all about having more personal liberty, controlling your life and leading you to more happiness. So Alex Mathers will be joining us on Wednesday, the 28th. Alex is a Poway resident. Um, He's a listener of our podcast. So um, right on. Looking forward to that. Um, And I'm also working, man, more on my addition by subtraction project. I told you about it. I mentioned it on a few of our podcast episodes where I'm going through all my stuff and I'm like getting rid of things and cleaning things. And so today I got someone coming over at five o'clock that's going to buy my Ovation acoustic guitar and the case for that, which I used for a while, but I no longer play it and I don't really have a need for it anymore. So I'm unloading that. Um, so then I've only got a couple more pieces of musical gear, but man, I've sold um, PA systems and bass guitars and amplifiers. And, and so I'm just like simplifying my life. And man, I can't, I can't recommend this enough, you know? And I mentioned here, I want to show this on the camera if I can, but I said on my last podcast episode that I went and bought these wooden boxes and these are really cool. And, and, um, I got them on Facebook and, and in here or not on Facebook on Amazon. And I can keep a lot of my personal menos, you know, like, uh, like really special little things. You know, just things that are passed down from my my uh, my biological father and and my mom and and even from my great grandmother. I've got some things in there, some just little pieces of jewelry. You know, they're probably not worth money on the market, but they're worth a lot to me. And so. I had these things scattered about. Now I've got a nice place for them and, um, and I'm getting rid of things and I still have to make a run and get some bunch of paper shredded. Um, I know they have those, um, you know, sometimes fundraisers that churches or, you know, student groups will do when they'll do um, shredding of paper. So I got to find one of those. I've got like five big bins of stuff to do. So I'm unloading a lot of this stuff and, and just simplifying my life. And it's a great thing. And over the weekend, I'm going to be uh, fixing up some bicycles and giving those away and just clean, simple addition by subtraction. Okay, so let's get to the debate. And Got a whole bunch of thoughts, comments, and uh, again, I welcome your thoughts and comments. We're live streaming on YouTube and on Facebook. You can type in your comments in the comment section. It'll pop up on my screen. I'll read it on the air, and let's have a little fun with this. But, you know, it, it does strike me, it's interesting, like how political debates to me, I always see a lot of similarity with sports, because I'm a big sports fan too. And, you know, everyone's got a team, and they're rooting for their team, and they got a guy, and they're rooting for their guy. And I was watching the news this morning, and out in normal Illinois, um, uh, uh, the Republicans, I don't know if it was like a local chapter of the Republican Party, had rented out like a minor league baseball stadium and they set up, you know, this big screen right at the pitcher's mound and all these Republicans were there just celebrating their guy, you know, so it's like a sporting event legitimately in a sporting arena. And these people were all fired up for their guy, Trump. And, you know, they interviewed the, the Trump people and it's a lot of, you know, the common comments you'll hear from Trump supporters, both logical and illogical. And then the same was true in Philadelphia, where a local politician had organized a Democratic you know, watch party and they had a block party and a big screen and a projector. And they were there, you know, rooting on their guy, Joe Biden. And and they were making, you know, the interviewer 
was there at the, doing the live report and getting logical and illogical comments from the Biden supporters. So it's kind of cool that, you know, I like how politics and sports have that similarity that that we all kind of have a team we root for. But then again, the other side of it is, is that's probably why we're so damn tribal, you know, and tribalism really is kind of undermining a lot of what's happening in our society. It's all this group warfare. But um, I don't know. I, I love debates. I, I think they're an interesting event. I always look forward to them. I was disappointed that, you know, they didn't have the second debate. This was the third debate, but really the second debate. Um, I thought Trump was a fool for not doing the second debate, even if it was done virtually over Zoom, because I think he needs every opportunity possible to try to, you know, narrow the gap because uh, he's behind right now. You know, if, if you agree with the polls, there's a lot of people think that the polls are not real. You know, they're using 2016 as an example. And I tend to think this is a little different. I think that, you know, the spread seems to be greater this year, especially in the swing states. I I think Trump's going to need a miracle to win this thing. Um, I think Biden's going to likely win it. So we'll see. But anyways, um, still 300. Think about this. There's 327 million people in the United States. And these are the two guys that are served up to us. I mean, come on. I I should be the one saying, come on, man. I mean, these guys, in my opinion, are both terrible candidates. They both have terrible policies. In a lot of cases, they're very similar. Um, It's just that they don't talk about the areas where they have similarity. They mostly talk about the areas where there are differences. But, you know, did anyone really change their mind after this? debate? Uh, I mean, not really. It's mostly theater, right? It's the Kabuki theater, but I don't think anybody changed their minds. I think most people walked away from the debate thinking that their guy won and the other guy, you know, is a, is from a crime family or, you know, is a racist or whatever it is. You know, they, they're convinced that their guy is an angel and the other guy is a devil. And again, it's just, it it is the tribalism behind it all. But you listen to these debates, like we were commenting about this online. There was no philosophy. There were no principles. You know, it was just like a lot of nonsense, a lot of like pragmatic policies. And you think about what are the policies that unite the Republicans? Um, you used to say that the Republicans were free for free market. They were for fiscal conservatism. They were for a small, less intrusive government. And you can't say that anymore. I mean, they're as much for, you know, central plan trade as the Democrats, but with maybe a slight number of differences. They're not for fiscal conservative. They're for big spending, just like the Democrats and uh, and big intrusive government. But still, you look at the policies that you hear frequently from the Republicans. What are the things that tie them together? There, there is no unifying philosophy. Um, it's not as if you know they're for individual rights but against collective rights. You, you see a lot of just a scattering of of illogical coordination. Like, like for example, what's the guiding philosophy that unites? Um, being pro-life on abortion and anti-illegal immigration um, and uh, and a trade war with China. <laughs> so what are the things that unite those? I mean, there, there is no similarity. There is no there is no principle. But I guess the one principle that we did here was that Biden said he thinks health care should be a right. And I know a lot of people think that. But it was funny. It's like this was the one moment, maybe just the one where there was actually a stand on a solid principle. And of course, what did Trump do? I mean, he didn't really combat it. He didn't fight it. He'd had no response, really, that was effective. But health care, in my opinion, can't be a right. It can't be because 
you know, we talk about how we have our own inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I mean, that means that I own me and you own you and we have our lives and we have the right to live our life and to choose and to pursue our own happiness, to live our life according to our own values. But if health care is a right, then what you're doing is you're putting a duty on someone else to pay for it or on someone else to perform the service. It's kind of like the difference between positive and negative rights, right? A positive right actually places a duty on someone else. A negative right, like free speech as an example, places a duty on nobody. Um, Negative rights are righteous. Positive rights violate the rights of other people. And so when, and I, I get why Biden and our progressive friends on the left believe healthcare should be a right. And sometimes they'll even cite our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And they'll say, well, life is the first one on the list. But it doesn't mean that you can coerce other people to get, give you what you want. Not at all. Um, Pete Neal chimes in. Health is a major part of life. Significant loss of health removes life. Pete, you're right. Health is a major part of life. Absolutely. You do have a right to your life. But so does the other guy. The other guy also has a right to manage his life and have his liberty and his pursuit of happiness. So if you're if you're inalienable right of life forces other people to sacrifice their rights, then I don't think it should be a right in the first place. Now, there are a lot of problems with our healthcare system. And, and I mean, we can go down the list, but it, I don't think it needs to be a right. I mean, that's, I, I draw the line there. I, I think that's a problem. I, I don't think you should be placing duties on others. Um, but what was funny is, is during the debate, Trump kept trying to pin Biden and say, oh, that's, he's socialized medicine. And, and the, the funny part of it is, is that Trump is presiding over a system of socialized medicine. About 43 percent of Americans have insurance from the government, health care insurance from the government, whether they're getting Medicare or they're getting Medicaid or they're on what's the child one? Is it chip or ship? <laughs> um, that's another one. And then or if they're a, a veteran, if they're on the V.A., I mean, all those people are getting a form of socialized medicine now. Yet Trump is trying to condemn Biden for a socialized medicine system when he presides over one. And then meanwhile, Biden's system isn't really, you know, the socialized medicine that Trump's trying to make it out to be. I mean, Trump's trying to, you know, twist it and and make Biden like Bernie. Right. And think that Biden wants single payer. But Biden righteously said at the debate, he goes, man, I I fought those guys. I fought uh, Bernie and the other progressives and the other Democratic socialists. And I stood for private health care. But he also wants the public option. And the public option to me is an interesting topic because the public option conceptually would be that, you know, you could buy insurance from any number of private insurance uh, uh, providers out there or you can buy insurance from the government and then you could choose on what was best for you. And on the surface, that sounds reasonable, right? Like, uh, you know, it, but as long as the government's management of public option only has the revenue that comes in from the premiums of the people that choose to be in that system. But we all know that will never happen because if, even if we had a public option, 
healthcare would be managed, in this case, by politicians. Therefore, it would become politicized. And like Medicare and like Social Security, they would be giving out excessive amounts of benefits to appease their voters and then limiting the amount of um, of uh, taxation to also appease their voters, sending the system into deficits, which both Social Security and Medicare have right now, and likely setting us up for a problem where only the government could save the government. <laughs> so uh, I, I'm always thinking, you know, if public option sounds nice on the surface, but you know it's going to be subsidized by um, income tax and the general fund. It won't be a standalone discrete silo, um, a parallel universe, if you will, because it'll get blended in. And um, and and I think what will happen is, is that if we get if we get um, a public option, it'll just be another step towards single payer. I personally am not a fan of single payer. I don't trust monopolies. A single payer is a monopoly. Um, it's where we have one entity that makes that, that it essentially rules the whole system. Our current system is a mess. It's it, it's a disaster for a lot of different reasons. But um, it, it's interesting that Trump was trying to pin socialized medicine on Biden, trying to make Biden. <laughs> not what he really is representing. And meanwhile, Trump is presiding over socialized medicine to a large degree. Uh, Pat Johnson chimes in. Remember that when a person goes to the emergency room, they cannot be turned away and we pay for that. And that is no small bill every year. Um, Pat, you're right. Absolutely right. And that's a problem. It's the system that we have set up now is, uh, is, is loaded with problems and, you know, you got people that show up in emergency rooms, they can't pay, but then who should pay? Can the hospital turn them away? It's complicated um, and it's troublesome. Um, but the system we have today, I think all of us could agree, is a cluster and doesn't work properly. Um, Vel- Velmi uh, comments, who do you believe has the advantage in this election? Um, well, again, this is not who I support. But I believe Biden will win. Um, I know I'm 100 percent certain that Biden will win the state that I'm in, will win California. That's a stone cold lock. Um, So it doesn't matter who I vote for. If I vote for Biden or if I vote for Trump or I vote for a third party candidate, which I did, um, the end result will be the same. Biden will win the state of California. I think Biden will win overall. He'll win the Electoral College. Um, But I didn't think that President Trump was going to get the GOP nomination. and I didn't think Trump was going to win the general against Hillary. So my predictions are not very good. So I but I do think it it will be Biden. Um, Matthew Brannigan says um, it works fine in every other first world country. Why should the USA be different? Well, yeah, single payer, apparently, I haven't experienced it firsthand, apparently works very good in a lot of other first world countries. But do you trust our politicians in Washington, D.C. to get it right? I mean, look what look, look at the socialized medicine system that we have now with Medicare. They set it up so drug prices cannot be renegotiated. I mean, come on, man. So do you trust President Trump to run a single payer health care system, assuming he won reelection? I don't have that level of trust with the corrupt politicians in D.C. And then what happens if we have single payer and it is a corrupt mess? What are our options? We have none because private insurance is illegal. Because it's been banned. That's what Kamala Harris wants to do. She said she wants to get rid of all the private insurance. 
So then what? And then meanwhile, you're being taxed for single payer, getting screwed out of that. That costs a lot of money. And then what are your other choices? So I don't trust the federal government to get it right. I just don't. So um, Velmin uh, chimes in further. I am a hardworking man. Will I face damage from either president? Yeah, I do. I think I think both presidential candidates have a lot of weaknesses that I think are damaging to our individual rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Uh, Velmin goes on. Will Biden raise taxes on supermarket workers? <laughs> um, you, you, you know, if he puts in um, a single payer health care plan, he will, although he's saying he's doing public option. Um, if uh, uh, he's talked about in his plan that when people buy and sell real estate, that they're going to be taxed more than they're being taxed now. Um, you know, yeah. So the, the, in that case, supermarket workers that happen to own homes that I know of, I, Mike Ryan was a guest on this podcast. He works at the Albertsons and Rancho Bernardo. Um, he's been a guest on the podcast multiple times. He's a homeowner. Um, he may experience additional taxes more than what he would pay today if President Biden is elected and, or Vice President Biden is elected and his policies put into place. But, yeah, for the most part, most of Biden's tax increases are on the other guy. Right. <laughs> They're on the, the evil rich people. Um, Pete Neal goes on to say mixing money with health renders well-being on a variable scale proportionate to something other than the right to life. Um, well, yeah, I mean, but, you know, even if the federal government is involved in a single payer health plan, you think money is not going to be an issue? Of course, money is going to be an issue. People that perform health care services need to be paid and people that are getting health care services need to pay for that service. Money will always be involved in health care decisions. Um, and to think that it wouldn't. I mean, you know, in many ways, I think money can be an incentive um, for a lot of healthcare solutions where you know, we can have more uh, medical devices and more uh, medicines and other innovations that can come forward where there is financial reward for those manufacturers that are going to have a benefit to healthcare patients and to consumers. I think that's a good thing. But yeah, you'll never get money out of the healthcare system. That's not, that's not uh, going to happen. Um, <laughs> just because Yeezy have a chance. Um, Matthew Brannigan says, you're probably right. I think that ship has sailed. Um, Poway Don says, don't forget the VA is an example of government health care. I've heard stories about the VA. Um, I, I, of course, I'm not a veteran, so I've never experienced it firsthand. Um, maybe others could comment on that. But uh, I know one of the things I think they recently did this with the VA, which I think is a good thing, is that veterans don't necessarily only have to go to a veteran's hospital, a VA hospital like the one in La Jolla, if they have medical needs, that they could actually kind of like a voucher system. They can go to other hospitals or other health care providers. I think that's a good thing. And I think a veteran's veterans health care to me is a reasonable thing um, because it's like an employee benefit, right? So the military, people that served um, in, the, in this nation and served, I mean, we're going to get into the whole topic of servant and service, but um, you know, people that, were, that served in the military having health care benefits, I mean, certainly if they were um, you know, physically or mentally harmed in a war, absolutely that should be uh, covered as part of their plan. But just in general, to have an attractive uh, benefit like that as part of their employment contract, to me, makes a ton of sense. Not just their employment contract while they're employed, but even after they have retired from the military. To me, that's reasonable. But as far as how it works, I really couldn't tell you. 
Um, <laughs> is Kanye West running for president? Um, yeah, but that's mostly a, a, a publicity stunt. Um, Matthew Brannigan goes on to say, it's true that going single payer in the U.S. would be a logistical nightmare. It should have been done 60 to 70 years ago. Yeah, you can make that comment. But again, I, I don't have much trust in it. But it was funny as we heard Biden, you know, Biden even referred to it. I'm, we're going to have Biden care. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, it's just we keep getting more and more government intrusion into the healthcare system. And do you notice that the more government gets involved, the more expensive it gets? Um you know, when government implemented Medicare in the 60s, healthcare prices kept going up at far greater rate than the uh, than the rate of inflation. And then um, President Bush implemented an expansion on Medicare uh, for prescription drugs. And like I said, they set it up where the prices can't be renegotiated. They set it up where less expensive, safe medicines from um, in foreign nations were banned from being imported. It wasn't that they were just tariffed and taxed. They were banned from importing because they were a competitive threat to big pharma in the United States. So um, the more government gets involved, it seems the more expensive it gets. And then when uh, Obamacare was implemented, the so-called Affordable Health Care Act, the price of health care kept going up. It went up at a slower rate of, inf- uh, of increase than it did before. But ultimately, the Affordable Care Act made health care less affordable. Um, so, I, again, I don't have trust because I think part of the problem is, and I've commented on this in my podcast numerous times, is that they're, the lobbyists and the insiders and the healthcare professionals and the big pharma have so much power and control over the politicians that they get the politicians to set up laws and regulations that benefit those companies. That's why I keep saying we need to have a separation of the economy and the state, kind of like the separation of church and state, because as long as the federal government has this massive power to centrally plan the system, they're going to continue to rig it and they're going to rig it for their donors who then, you know, pay them off and it becomes this problem. And that's why healthcare is so damn expensive. Um, so, uh, you know, people, they even talked a little bit about um, in the debate last night about pre-existing conditions and Trump promised he was going to cover that. And remember, Trump got rid of the mandate uh, with Obamacare, which I thought was good. I mean, government mandating that you have to buy private insurance. The, this was part of the problem um, with, with um, the Affordable Care Act, because the, our friends, our progressive friends on the left, you know, they rightfully for their, you know, for their reasons, they call for uh, a single payer health care plan. But yet they were demanding that Obamacare force people to buy corporate insurance, the same corporate insurance companies that they were railing against and disliked. Um, but uh, it goes even further. The, one of the one of the problems with our health care system today and our progressive friends have rightfully identified this is that we need to disconnect our health care insurance from our employment um, because when uh, when we have independence, you know, when we have like essentially our life insurance, our homeowners insurance, our auto insurance, that doesn't change when we quit a job or lose a job. Um, but with health care, it does. And what ends up happening is, is then you suddenly lose your health care and then you have a pre-existing condition and then you're screwed when you want to get insured again. The, the Affordable Health Care Act made employer provided insurance 
a, a far greater mandate for that. It forced more companies to provide employer-based insurance when we should have been doing the opposite and getting away from it. Um, so it, it made the system worse, in my opinion. Matthew Brannigan goes on to say it's impossible to force insurance companies to cover pre-existing conditions. Yeah, you know, it's, it's like um, it's almost like buying um, homeowners insurance the day after your house caught on fire. Um, it's, it's hard to do that. So that's why I always thought that if we if we had our own insurance, this is my opinion. I think insurance is a is a risk management tool. That's the purpose of insurance. But in healthcare, insurance is instead this this channel where we funnel all of our spending through. I mean, imagine if we uh, use that with our car or our house, we would have every automobile or home expense funneled through our insurance. That doesn't make any sense. Insurance should be a risk management tool. So if you suddenly had a serious illness that you couldn't afford to pay out of pocket, that insurance would would act as like a safety net for you and would provide that kind of coverage. But the problem is, is that with the Affordable Care Act, such um, you know, catastrophic only healthcare insurance policies were deemed illegal. <laughs> so I've always thought that healthcare should be a um, a risk management. Healthcare insurance should be a risk management tool for catastrophic cases that we pay cash for all routine healthcare matters. And if we did that, the price would go way, way, way down. The price of our healthcare premiums for the insurance would go way, way, way down because it's only for catastrophic care. And if we paid cash for our routine healthcare needs, the price for that would go way, way down, especially if there was actually a transparent pricing system that wasn't convoluted by the whole insurance system. The whole, the whole part, the, the challenge with insurance is that we get into a system where consumers don't care what things cost. Because they're insulated from the true costs of the product or services they buy. With insurance, people just will, will place excessive demands on the system because they know that the other guy's paying for it. Uh, they, have no, they make no decisions based on value. Um, so that's another reason why healthcare insurance prices have gone way, way up. And yet the government wants more people to have healthcare insurance to cover very routine healthcare coverage. So again, I. I look at what Trump's doing. You know, they, Trump, Biden rightfully got on Trump's case. You haven't shown us a plan. You've been promising us a plan. And yeah, I mean, Trump has been bullshitting people. He has no plan. Um, and meanwhile, Biden's plan, you know, public option, you know, to me, public option is better than single payer. But um, I don't trust public option. I don't trust those guys to do it right. Um Pat Johnson goes on to say it's going to get worse November 11th when the Supreme Court strikes down Obamacare and Trump, Trump still, uh, after three and a half years, has no plan. Yeah, that's true. Uh, you're right, Pat. And Bruce McCoy says, how about a state funded basic level of health care plus a private option, which would be provided by employers? And yeah, there's so many ways to configure it. Um, you know, allowing states to have their own choices is better than a one size fits all mandate from the federal government, um, in my opinion. But then the progressives want one big pool to minimize the the um, the overall costs. You know, it's sort of a risk management thing. There's logic to the progressives idea of a single payer plan. 
I just don't trust the federal government to do it right. And I know when they screw it up, I have no other choice. It's a monopoly. And it's very likely that private insurance won't simply not be available. It may be illegal. So I don't have trust. And I look at the way the federal government manages a lot of other programs. I'm like, well, yeah, it's no wonder I don't have trust. But, you know, you look at other cases like um, like chiropractic care. You know, I go down when I have chiropractic needs here in Poway, I go to Dr. Mark at Community Chiropractic right there, the intersection of Poway Road and Pomerado Road. He's a great guy. I pay cash and he has a price list and my I'm paying a very reasonable amount. It's very affordable. It's affordable for most anyone. Um, it's because it's a non-insurance transparent price model. And for people that got LASIK um, uh, surgery for their eyes, you notice that people pay cash for that. It's, it's cosmetic. It's not really medically required. Um, so insurance doesn't cover it. But yet the price has gone down dramatically. The quality has gone dramatically up. And we have a great system. <laughs> it works well um, when we when we remove the government regulations and remove insurance and just use insurance for what it's intended for a catastrophic case. Like if you get cancer or you, you have a heart attack, that makes sense. But when you are having routine health care needs, I think it should be paid for by cash. Um, OK, so then also during the debate, I don't know if you noticed, but President uh, Vice President Biden checked his watch. And I was thinking about remember in 1992, George H.W. Bush checked his watch in a debate with Bill Clinton and Ross Perot on the stage. And but that was a great debate because there were three people on the stage. I mean, that's what I'm desperate for now. Why are these 327 million people and they only serve up these two guys? Um, we need more options, more choices on this final debate stage especially when Trump said he wouldn't do it in debate number two. They, they should have been bringing up some of these alternative third party candidates, independent candidates. But at any rate, um, yeah, he checked his watch. And I was thinking 1992, like, that's almost 30 years ago. Oh, man, I'm just getting old um, there. I saw some funny conspiracy theories about um, people thinking, well, you know, is that really a watch? You know, in 1992, when uh, H.W. checked his watch, he was probably checking the time. But what kind of sneaky pieces of information are people backstage feeding Biden on his like Dick Tracy watch? I, I thought that was a bit of a leap, but it, it was it was funny. Um, now, there was a oh, yeah, there's a couple more comments here. And uh, Matthew Brannigan says, I wish I had all the answers to fixing our health care in the United States. I don't. But nobody else seems to either. Yeah, it's a very complicated system. Um, that's why I'm, I'm of the opinion that we need. Again, it's like addition by subtraction. I talk about that a lot. We have, there's too much crap in the system. There's too much rigging of the system, too many um, moneyed interests that have distorted the system. And then people have one arm tied behind their back and they're prevented from choosing in a lot of cases. Um, that's why I think. The reason that it's so damn expensive is because the government has been getting more and more and more involved. Forty three percent of people in the United States are using government funded health care insurance. And the other, what is it, 57 percent are buying private health care insurance that's heavily, heavily, heavily regulated by the government. And then we wonder why it's so expensive. 
Um, Poway Don says, healthcare pricing transparency is a big issue for me. Why is my mechanic required to post their rates, but hospitals and doctors don't? Exactly. Ex- exactly, Poway Don. We, we should be able to see the price list. But what they do is they distort it, right? So uh, just to pick a number out of thin air, let, let's just say there was something, a service that would normally cost hypothetically 100 bucks. Well, they, what they do is they, they tell the insurance companies and, and Medicare specifically that that $100 service really costs, um, it really costs $300. And so then Medicare says, well, we need a discount and we need to negotiate a discount. And then they work it down to like $150. And they think, wow, we got a 50% discount. Um, but meanwhile, the whole thing should have only been a hundred bucks to start with. Um, so the, the pricing is completely distorted because of insurance and because of government. And a lot of times Medicare is the one that's demanding those discounts off the retail price. And then the private insurers kind of follow suit. They play the same game. So then when a, a poor schmuck who, who, you know, doesn't have health care insurance, oh, forgive me, I shouldn't have said schmuck, but a poor person Pardon me. Pardon me. The, a poor person who doesn't have health care insurance needs to pay cash. Um, they're screwed <laughs> because the cash price is insane. The cash price makes no sense. The cash price is a fake price. It's a fake price just to work the system and gamify it with the insurance companies. And the insurance companies are doing it because they're required to be involved by government and everything else. The whole thing's a mess. Um, Pat Johnson says Fox is making a big deal of that. But remember, the, the moderator had just said we are almost out of time. That's why he checked. Oh, that's why he checked his watch. Yeah, yeah, you're right. That is fair. Uh, what's her name? Kristen Welker did mention something about time. And I guess it was just a knee jerk reaction by Biden. He checked his watch. Um, I don't know. It's just a funny thing. I was just thinking about the Perot debate and everything else. But during the debate, they also talked about the talk. Um, and this was a really good topic to discuss because um, it has a lot of different angles to it. And of course, the talk is what um, black parents have to sit down their black child um, or and this applies to a lot of other uh, people of color, minority populations and tell their child that if you are ever in a, in a engagement, um, any kind of an incident with the police, it needs to be one where you're not challenging them, where you're not a threat to them. Because if the minute you are, you're going to be perceived as a threat and then you're going to be handcuffed, shoved off to jail, and it's a good chance we may never see you again. Um, or you're going to have a significant part of your life destroyed. That's a problem. And that that happens. Um, parents, black families, um, families of color are ha- have those conversations. That's real. It's sad. It's uh, it's a this. If anything, this is a commentary on our police system, our criminal injustice system. Um, and I think a lot of this, in my opinion, goes to the war on drugs. The war on drugs has made the police so much more aggressive, so much more intrusive, um, so empowered, so militarized to come after people because they're coming after drugs. But what they end up doing is there's just this tremendous amount of a wake of destruction and violation of people's rights. It's awful that families have to have that conversation. But what's interesting is that another friend of mine here in Poway posted on Facebook and said, you know, and he's white. He said, you know, 
my family had that same talk with me. And where they said, you know, if you're ever pulled over by a police officer, put your hand on the wheel, 10 and 2. Don't reach for your glove box to get your registration because they will perceive that to be reaching for a weapon. And I thought about it and I went, did I, did my family tell me that? They might have. I, I remember hearing that. I can't remember where I heard it. And I know that whenever I've been stopped by a police officer, I always do the 10 o'clock, 2 o'clock thing. Um, but it, 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 it was interesting that it was brought up. And, and certainly within the context of the debate, it went to the whole bit about President or Vice President Biden and his crime bill. And I've been a big critic of him for that reason. Um, why should this guy be president trying to solve the criminal injustice problem when his crime bill in the 90s was a big part of the problem to begin with? Uh, that's what empowered the police uh, to a whole new level. Um, and, and, and had mandatory minimums that threw people in jail for long periods of time, far disproportionate from the actual crime that that occurred. I mean, there's a long list of things in that crime bill. They're just awful. And Trump came after him for that, rightfully so. But what was amazing is, is that Biden, he, he said it was a mistake. Now, he said some of the votes that were taken in the 80s when the when the uh, Senate approved uh, a crime bill back then, it was like 100 zero, said that was a mistake. I don't know if he said his crime bill was a mistake. He might have. But that was interesting. I mean, it was like, wow, you, how often do you hear a politician say it was a mistake? Especially if you go back and look at the YouTube bits of when he was really pushing this, he was prancing around like a peacock on the Senate floor talking about how important it is we need to lock these people away, you know, for, you know, for, until the end of eternity. Um, he was a, over the top aggressive as a, as a senator, Joe Biden was. And now he's saying it's a mistake. Well, it was a mistake. Um, and I'm glad to hear him saying that. Uh, but I think it is important to really think about that, where a big part of a lot of the strife in the streets and the racial um, unrest and Black Lives Matter and a lot of that, those people are protesting for righteous reasons, where they have been treated Inequally before the law, where their inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have been violated by the very government, the very institution that's supposed to protect those rights. So when we see this huge criminal injustice problem, we need someone to solve it. But Biden implemented the crime bill, which caused a big part of the problem. And then Kamala Harris as attorney general and as district attorney of San Francisco was aggressively throwing people in jail, sometimes withholding evidence to get people off of um, death row. I mean, both. I mean, if, if you're going to elect a Democrat to reform criminal injustice, it's, it shouldn't be Biden and Harris. It should have been one of the other ones up on the stage. Um, but here we are now. Trump has reformed criminal injustice a little bit, but not anywhere significant enough that I think you can really, you know, get put a star on his collar for it. I don't think either one of them are really the fans of that. I mean, if anything, President Trump is all about law and order and beefing up the power of the president, see, or beefing up the power of the police. And you saw that when he did that, um, that, what, what do you want to call it? Like that, uh, that staged photo op when he walked from the White House across the street to the church and got his picture taken with the Bible. Well, he ended up having to violate the rights of people that were practicing free speech and the police used tear gas to oppress people's rights that were you know, rightfully demonstrating. They have a right to peacefully demonstrate. Um, so, I, I, again, I don't trust either of these guys to be the solution 
to the criminal injustice problem. I don't. Um, but it was brought up in the debate. Okay, so we got some more comments that are flying in here. Uh, Poway Don says, hey, Pete, I guess we have conversation going on in the chat amongst our fans on the podcast. Hey, Pete, uh, say taxpayer funded instead of government funded. The government spends our money. Yeah, it is taxpayer funded. We're back to healthcare care here. Um, sometimes people think of oh, the government funds it like, oh, I don't have to pay for it. Someone else pays for it. But we all pay. Um, the government really doesn't produce anything. They just take people's money and rearrange it and repackage it for other things. Um, Pete Neal, I stand corrected. Thank you. Uh, Poway Don says, I don't want to pay for your health issues caused by your smoking, and you shouldn't have to pay for my wife's pregnancy. <laughs> uh, you know, Pete's a smoker, but I'll tell you what, Pete is a, um, what's the right word for this? A courteous smoker. Um, you know, so he will be very aware of other people and he's polite about it. Uh, but yeah, Pete's a smoker. Um, my, my mother is a smoker and she struggles with that too. Um, okay. So they also, it was a funny too, during the debate, they talked about the $15 minimum wage and, you know, this is a whole rabbit hole, but I'm, I'm going to save it for another podcast because this one gets everyone fired up. And I have, I've had some really good conversations with people lately on this. But the part that I will say as it pertain in the debate where Trump was criticizing Biden for the $15 an hour minimum wage and by, uh, Trump is saying, well, we can't have that. It's going to harm businesses and yada, yada. But Trump has been all over the place on the minimum wage. He, he um, called for having a minimum wage. Then he's called for not having a federal minimum wage. Let the states do it. Trump, and if you, you can look up all these quotes, it's on, it's on public record. He has commented to, at various times in history, to raise the minimum wage. And now he's calling for the, the, not to raise the minimum wage. This is what Trump does, is he plays both sides of most issues. He plays to the audience. He wants to be loved. He wants to be liked. And so he'll say what's ever necessary to advance his cause. But he has no principles. He has, there, that's what one of my biggest you know, beefs with this whole event. There were no principles. These guys, they kind of shift around. The only principle I heard is when Biden said healthcare should be a right, which is a principle I don't agree with. Um, but you know, when, and Biden, you know, he's kind of picking up the, the progressive talking points that $15 an hour is necessary. And, but again, I'm going to save that for another podcast because, you know, we're already at 45 minutes and I have a lot more I want to share. Um, more comments coming in. Pete Neal says, true enough, but I will say that a pack of cigarettes is currently $1.90 with a cost of 35 cents. The difference is taxes and is predominantly aimed at support of health care in various forms. Yeah, cigarettes are heavily taxed. Um, and is it being redirected to health care? They say it is, um, but it's not being redirected to Pete's health care because I think Pete's a veteran. I think uh, I would assume Pete gets health care from the Veterans Administration, um, but it's probably helping other people's health care, but probably um, only certain people, not everyone. At any rate, um, let's move on. Uh, here, here's an, another really crazy one. During the debate, President Trump was talking about, well, I'm tough on China and I'm I'm tough on Russia. <laughs> and he said, well, you know. I, he's talking about ch uh, China. Um, I think it was China. And he says, I charged them 25% on the steel. And you're thinking, what a load of crap this is again, because this is talking about his trade war and tariffs. Now, either Trump is completely economically ignorant or he is purposely lying. When there are tariffs on any product, 
you're not charging the other nation. China doesn't pay for the tariffs. We pay. Americans pay. When, when, whoa. Didn't turn off my ringer before the podcast. So um, when when steel is imported into the United States, the minute it crosses, um, you know, into the hands of the local importer, the importer has to pay a duty. That's the tariff. The American company, the corporation that imports it pays the duty, pays the tax, pays the tariff, not China. And then they obviously bundle that into their overall cost and pass it down the supply chain to other distributors and resellers and eventually to the consumer who's paying for things. And so when Trump said, you know, he says, um, when I I charged them 25 percent on steel, what that really means is, is that Americans had to pay more money for products that have steel in them. So and I'm. When it comes to this, this, the whole notion of trade war, Trump loves to talk up this, you know, we got a trade war with China and, and uh, you know, they're ripping us off and we're losing money to China. Now, if you're going to talk about intellectual property, that's a legit issue. But let's set that aside. What he's really talking about with a trade deficit is, is how much we buy from Chinese companies and how much Chinese companies buy from American companies. And there's a difference. That's the trade deficit. A trade deficit does not matter. I'll say it again. A trade deficit does not matter. It doesn't matter. I have a trade deficit with my grocery store. I give them money. They give me goods. They give me food in return. I have a trade deficit. I got, I got zero money from the grocery store. They got all my money. That's a trade deficit according to the way it's defined. They don't, they're, they're only measuring the cash going in, in each direction. They're not measuring the, the goods that we get in return. So every, you know, they talk about fair trade versus free trade. Well, every transaction is, you know, conceptually, every transaction is fair. The buyer and the seller agree. Um, but when one group does more buying than selling and the other one does more selling than buying, is that unfair? Not necessarily. Um, if, if another, com- in my opinion, if another country has companies that make steel and can make it of equal or higher quality of American steel and can do it at a lower price, we should be buying as much of that as we can. Because in doing so, we will benefit economically. In doing so, we'll pay less for steel which then means we have more money left over in our pockets and businesses have more leftover money in their profits, which then could be spent and invested domestically with American companies. So trade deficits are not a problem. They're not, even though they're, they're made out to be. Um, and then Trump, but Trump, what he does is he uses China as the political foil, as the enemy, and he plays off of the enemy. That's kind of his whole shtick. And he was doing it again in that. And and the interesting thing is, is that, you know, it's all about America first and got to protect the American worker. But when you have these tariffs that protect the American worker, that factory worker in um, Ohio, you end up benefiting. Yeah, you're going to help those workers in Ohio. And maybe there's a few hundred, a few thousand at a factory, they're going to be benefited from the tariffs. But it's the benefit those very few at the expense of everybody else, at the expense of the many. 
So tariffs are just a terrible economic policy, and most any reputable economist will tell you that. In fact, the tariffs, uh, the Smoot-Hawley tariffs, were a big reason we sank deeper into the Great Depression. That's one of many reasons. Um, But yeah, tariffs are just an awful policy. But Trump likes that because it gives him the opportunity to say, those guys are the bad guys, and I'm going to protect these Americans. And the rest of the Americans... The ones that actually have to pay the tariff doesn't care about them. And yet he also says that he's for cutting taxes, but tariffs are for increasing taxes on Americans. And then he tells you that China is paying for it. It's just nonsense. So um, looking back here, uh, again, we welcome your comments and thoughts. Just continuing on, there, there was this interesting bit. And, you know, that I read online. And this is a quote from Frederick Bastiat, um, who's a really good kind of economist, philosopher. And he said, protectionism, which is what we're talking about with these tariffs and the trade war, protectionism, socialism and communism are basically the, the same plant in three different stages of growth. I was like, wow, OK, I want to I want to learn more about that. And the more I learned about it, it's true, because. You know, Bastiat says it's varying degrees of plunder, varying degrees of, you know, theft or coercion, you know, where your own liberty, your own inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness continually get eroded the further that the, the more that plant grows from protectionism to socialism to communism. And um, and it also erodes property rights as a result, because what you're earning, you keep less. And and what you earn is taken away. Um, but and if you if you if you think this sounds crazy, I mean, think about Trump's tariff policies. Where does a lot of the money from the tax increases on the tariffs go? It goes to the farmers, because when the tariffs are implemented, Americans are paying a tax on imported goods. Those imp- that that tax is placed at the port of call, the port of duty that those taxes go into the federal government. Uh, to the treasury or they maybe have a special fund for it. Well, what, then as a result, China retaliates. They set up their own barriers to, to trade on their side. Now, suddenly American farmers can't sell soybeans and wheat and corn and other things in, in China or other nations. Then they can't export. Then our farmers are economically damaged. And then Trump takes the tax money from the tariffs and gives it to the farmers. That's socialism. And that's what's happening. And that's what, again, why Trump's trade war is probably one of the biggest reasons why I think he's a terrible, terrible president. Um, And I could go on and on about it. But um, and then there was a little bit of discussion about immigration. And my God, we're at 53 minutes. But I I, the rest of this will be a little bit shorter. But um, there was topic about immigration and, um, you know, about the cages and who built them and 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 the children being separated with their parents. Well, the funny thing is this, is they, they'll all like to point the finger at the other guy, right? Where Trump was telling Biden, well, yeah, you and Obama, you guys built the cages. And, and then Biden will get after Trump, rightfully so, was like, well, you were the ones that separated parents from their children. And apparently a lot of these family connections are, you know, they're lost. <laughs> they may not be, ever be able to reconnect the parent to the child. Um, 
which is a terrible, awful policy in a nation that's you know welcoming of immigrants. Give us your poor and huddled masses, a nation that's built on our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. Putting people in cages at the border is insane. Separating families from children is insane. Um, so both of these guys are like pointing their finger back at each other. And, and then Trump is, you know, creating this essentially it's a war on immigrants. You know, there's been a war on drugs. Now there's a war on immigrants is really what it's about. You know, Trump and a lot of Trump supporters will say, well, we just care about illegal immigration. We want to ban illegal immigration. But that's not true. They want to ban legal immigration as well. They've all, you know, Trump campaigned in 2016 on a Muslim ban. He wanted to ban anybody who was Muslim from entering the United States. Now, besides the fact that that is a violation of our inalienable rights, it's also a direct attack on the First Amendment, <laughs> you know, freedom of religion. You know, it's a discrimination on the, on the basis of religion. And it's a damn bigoted, potentially racist thing to do. Um, they, he eventually, you know, walked it back a little bit and just banned people from certain nations. Legal immigrants, L- legal immigrants that have gone through the whole legal immigration process, banning them. Now, President Trump is um, withdrawing visas from legal immigrants, taking away their work visa, taking away their student visa. And he says he's only against illegal immigration. He's against legal immigration, too. So I, I and, and Biden, you know, was part of the Obama administration that had tremendous deportations and they built the cages and they actually constructed parts of the wall. So. I know. I, I keep thinking, which candidate is there that wants to make legal immigration easier, faster, cheaper? That wants to have an immigration system that is consistent with our inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which, by the way, also applies to them. Those aren't just for Americans. You know, it's the. It says, you know, all men, really, all men and women, all humans, are created equal. These rights are inalienable. They apply to everybody, not just Americans and not to people from Honduras or Guatemala or Mexico. So which candidate is for a policy that an immigration policy that's consistent with our inalienable rights of life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness? Which one actually wants to cut down illegal immigration in a sane and responsible way by just simply making legal immigration easier, faster, and cheaper. If legal immigration was easier, faster, and cheaper, then there wouldn't be as many people coming in illegally in the first place. So, again, I look at both these guys. I'm like, which, which one is the best candidate? I just have trouble with both of these guys. And then, um, you know, then at the end, really, was anyone's mind changed? Probably not. Probably not. Um, the debates, the, the, these final presidential debates would be so much better if there was a third or a fourth person on the stage. But otherwise, it's just these talking points. And yeah, this one was a, a better be, than the first debate because Trump was more well-behaved. A lot of people thought it was a really well-done debate. Some people really praised Kristen Welker. I heard other people criticize her. I thought she did a good job as a moderator, better than the others. Um, better than Chris Wallace and a lot of the other moderators um, from 2016. But, um, you know, minds weren't changed, I don't think. I think, you know, the Trump people are convinced their guy won. The Biden people are convinced their guy won. And what few undecideds exist, I don't know if that really swayed them one way or the other. 
And even if a few did get swayed, it's probably such a tiny fraction. Frankly, I'd bet at least half the people have probably voted by now, you know, with all these um, ballots that have been sent out in the mail. I know here in um, San Diego County, I think about three quarters of the people, you know, prior to this election cycle had voted absentee. Now they're mailing ballots to everyone. I'm sure even more are, are voting by mail. I if, Well, I didn't vote by mail. I actually delivered it to the registrar of voters, but I effectively did the same. I didn't vote on Election Day. Yeah, I chose just to, I normally love going to the polls. I, I like the process, but I just had a feeling that this year was going to be longer lines and uglier. And I, and I was kind of getting a little sick and tired of it all. I figured I'm just going to vote and be done with it. And I'm glad I did it. So I went down to, down to um, you know, down here, Postal Annex in Poway and got it done, which was good. Okay. Um, just a, a, a couple of things here. Uh, we'd love for you to just, if you like this show, subscribe, like it, share it. That would be really helpful. That's what helps me build this up. We've got five people right now on the live stream, and I know we've had as many as eight. A lot of people watch these after they've been recorded. But if you're watching on the live stream, man, give us a thumbs up if you think we're doing a good thing. That's helpful, um, and it helps us with the algorithm. Um, okay, now i got some local news I want to get to. And I want to talk about this whole idea of public servants and, and the like. So um, here in Poway, uh, I had uh, um, every political candidate, you know, for running for city council and school board in Poway um, here as guests on the podcast. I'm really proud of that because I think it's great to have local candidates have long form conversations and and we learn a lot about those candidates. Um, now, recently at the Poway City Council meeting, and I made mention of this in my last podcast on yeah, today's Friday. So my last one was on Wednesday. I think this was the city council meeting on Tuesday and the city council was in the middle. You know, I, I mentioned this, but I'll just repeat it for others that are listening for the first time. The city council had previously given our restaurants in Poway the flexibility to set up picnic benches um, outside of their facility, in some cases in the parking lot or even in the metered parking spaces in some places, um, and gave them the flexibility to um, have their customers visit them because with COVID, they couldn't go inside. And, and, and the city council even went a step further and said, we'll even buy the picnic benches and loan them to you. Well, and then the, the Poway City Council on Tuesday had this plan that they were going to a extend the loan on the picnic benches and b extend the time period uh i think indefinitely that would allow these businesses to be able to serve their customers outside in the parking lots or in the parking spaces and um you know we can debate that and i think generally most people are are good with that you know um but you know, the president or not president, but the mayor, Mayor Steve Voss is running for for council uh, or for supervisor. You know, he's trying to get his policies implemented in Poway to make him look good on the ballot. And we got extra people. You know, there's two people on city council now, Kaylin Frank and Barry Leonard, that are running for reelection. So they're trying to, you know, do what they can to look good in front of the public. Well, we had a number of people that uh, that had comments to make on this policy because they wanted to have a non-smoking ordinance um, extended to those that patio seating. And there were a number of people that spoke out about it uh, uh, at the Poway City Council meeting in a Zoom meeting, and they were cut off by the city council. And I made comments about that on my podcast and online. And I'll give credit to Kaylin Frank. She responded and clarified it. And I want to just kind of explain it. 
And, you know, th- this say what you will about all of our candidates and everything. I think Kaylin Frank does a really good job on social media communicating with people. Her, one of her opponents, Chris Olps, also does a very good job on social media communicating with people. Um, where a lot of the other city councilmen, uh, people on, on Poway City Council either, A, don't do much on social media, or B, only use it for their own self-promotion. Uh, Kaylin will actually engage with you know, the constituents and explain things. So she told me that um, the reason is, is that they this ordinance they were discussing was for simply extending the time period for allowing the, the seating in the uh, uh, in, in the parking lots. And they wanted to keep the conversation focused just on that. And and rather than shifting the conversation to a tangent about smoking. And I'm trying to remember, uh, you know, the rationale for it. I think if some people wanted to have smoking and then, or not have smoking, then they might've considered that, but then other people might not have had the ability to comment on it in the public. And she had a rationale for it. But one, the other thing that she did say, and I think this is a, a fair statement is that for that specific issue, they there were the limitation on what could be discussed was very narrow and limited but in the general public comments at the beginning of the meeting that limitation didn't exist and i guess phil factor another city council candidate had did speak up about it um but then again he's only limited to three minutes so um it i still disappointed you know that when the public has something to say, the city council should open up and let them vent. You know, even if they can't really consider smoking one way or the other, they should still let the people vent. Um, and and cutting them off, I think, is a disservice. Now, apparently the city attorney got involved in this. I don't know the details of it, but it's interesting. And now um, Chris Cruz, who runs South and Poway, uh, North, uh, South and North Poway Votes, uh, Facebook group. Now she's running a poll to see how many people are in favor of a smoking ban um, in the outdoor seating at the restaurants in Poway. And as you could imagine, it's already overwhelmingly against smoking. Um, so interesting. Uh, I made my position on this known in the previous podcast. I won't go down that rabbit hole. But there was another part of this that was kind of interesting. And I had mentioned previously that there was some conversation online about term limits for our city council people in Poway, and we don't have term limits. And in fact, Dave Grush, um, who ran for term limits, got into office and then changed his mind. He said because it took so long to ramp up, he had to get more experience. And by the time he felt like he was um, able to really be a fully functioning city council person, that could be really effective for his constituents. It would have taken him almost an entire term to get ramped up. That's why he he came later came out against um, term limits. And Chris Cruz kind of made this comment, and, and this I want to read it to you because I had an interesting response to it. And so Santee is it has a number of the city of Santee has a number of term limit proposals on the ballot. I should look them up. I'm kind of curious. Apparently, there are multiple term limit proposals on the ballot in Santee. But Chris Cruz, um, who I mentioned her, she she's like a local uh, activist here in Poway. Um, she I mean, she really makes Poway politics her own business. 
and I mean business, I don't mean it as a commercial activity, but she's very, very interested and follows this. And um, she does her due diligence and she does her homework and she has a political point of view. She's definitely left of center, um, perhaps progressive. Um, and so as a result, you know, our whole city council, I think, are Republicans, definitely right of center. So Chris Cruz and our local politicians usually kind of rub against the grain a little bit. Um, but she said, um, we need this too, talking about term limits. Uh, maybe we can just copy their measure, cross out Santee and put in Poway and get it on the ballot. I'm inclined to think two terms is enough for anyone. And I generally agree term limits are a good idea. Um, and then she said, after two terms, council members forget that they are public servants. And I really want to dwell on that. Um, Pat Johnson chimes in. True. I agree 100 percent. We need term limits. Yeah, we do. Um, If term limits are good enough for the president of the United States, they're good enough for a Senate and Congress and everything else. And, yeah, a lot of those guys will recycle and pop up on their political animals. They'll pop up somewhere else after they've been term limited out, run for another office. But. I I like the idea of fresh faces, new ideas. I like the whole idea of turning over rocks. And the longer, in my opinion, the longer a politician is in office, the more and more they become part of the swamp. And so I love the idea of of fresh turnover. And frankly, I love the idea of candidates that maybe don't have as much experience about how the government actually works to be in there with a fresh perspective and challenging them and challenging them on, on, well, why does it have to work that way? Rather than going longer and longer with their term limit and then essentially morphing into another bureaucrat and then going along with the way things have always been done. We see a lot of that with um, actually with Poway School Board as well. Um, so I, I, I like fresh ideas and things, and uh, I'm all for term limits. But anyways, I said, or, or Chris Cruz said at the comment, uh, her final comment on it, um, after two terms, council members forget that they are public servants. And I was feeling a little feisty, um, and I responded to her, and I said, elected officials are not public servants. Um, and I said, in the, I said, they're not public servants in the first place. They run for office to amass power and control, not to serve. They just say they are servants to appeal to the altruistic mindset of voters. And wow, I got some response. There were a lot of people that agreed with me. But then Dave Grush responded and um, he said, he goes, it's a very disappointing comment to hear from you, John. Um, And, you know, is this why you ran for school board? He's referencing my race for school board in 2014. Um, And, you know, Dave Grush is a good guy. I mean, he's got a good heart. Um, He's a, a friendly guy, an approachable guy. I think he's doing what he's doing for all the right reasons. I, I don't have a problem at all with Dave Grush. And he's made some decisions as, on, on council that maybe I disagreed with, but he's a likable guy. Um, but he and I have a different opinion on what public servant really is all about. Because if you want to simply be a servant, if that is kind of your goal, you want to be altruistic, you want to be, um, you know, there, uh, you know, as a servant to the people. Well, that's what volunteers do. But if you are elected to office, you have power. I mean, that's the whole point of being an elected official is that you have power and control over a wide range of issues. A lot of cases, people run for office so they can have that power, maybe for the power to do good. 
Some people might say the power to do evil, um, but they have power uh, to change the system, to change, you know, the, the, the way the city is run. And to change, the, you know, as far as we have a lot of construction going on in Poway, a lot of that construction has been approved or in some cases it wasn't approved by the city council and, and projects have had to be canceled and redone. But the city council has tremendous power over what gets built in Poway. Um, they were the ones that um, gave the green light on the outpost, gave the green light on the Poway Commons, the ones that are negotiating with Fairfield to um, to say yes or no on their plan to build more residential housing at, at the at the site of the Poway thrift stores and the Poway bowling alley. So an elected official, in my opinion, is not a public servant. They are in it for power and control because that's the whole point of being on council. Um, and, um, you know, and, and but you hear this a lot with, with with government officials, not just necessarily with elected officials, but even with, you know, bureaucrats, you know, so-called um, state employees, city employees. They like to think of themselves as public servants, like they aren't self-interested, that they are only there to serve the public. Well, they're self-interested, too. In fact, um, government employees are often extraordinarily highly paid and get really good um, benefits, health care plan. They uh, get really good pensions. And we're seeing that, you know, um, how many retired um, uh, government employees are on pensions that are over six figures a year? That's a pretty good deal. That's a sweet package. So. When they kind of say we're servants, you know, to me, you know, when I hear the word servant, it's like, well, what does that mean? You know, um, and so, you know, it's like I, I hear the definition, one who serves, one who does services voluntarily or in compulsion, a person who is employed by another for menial offices or for other label and is a labor and is subject to his command, a person who labors or exerts himself for the benefit of another, his master or an employee a subordinate helper. So when I hear servant, I always think subordinate, less of power, but really public servants have tremendous power. And I don't think of them in those terms. Um, Poway Don chimes in. This is a bit of a non sequitur, but I wanted to sneak it in. What are your thoughts on having an upper age limit for running for president? We limit the low end at 35. Should we limit the upper end? Well, probably not. Um, I know that there are some people that are in their 80s or they're sharp as a tack. And other people that are in their 60s that are confused as hell. So I think a hard and fast rule, I don't think would really apply. Now, granted, we have two really old candidates. If Biden is elected, he'll definitely be the oldest candidate ever elected. And if Trump is elected, I think he'll be the oldest presidential candidate to be voted in, in this case, for a second term. Um, Yeah. It's funny for all the criticism that we hear from our friends on the left about we got too many old, rich, white guys running things. And now we have two old, rich, white guys on the stage, um, which is just, I don't know, ironic. But no, I don't think I would go for an upper limit. Um, Should there be a lower limit? I don't think so either. Um, Now, granted, I'm sure someone like AOC would love to run for president. I think she's like 28. Um, I've often joked that AOC could never fulfill a single term as president. 
it would never happen because she AOC would never be eligible to run for president until 2028. And just last year, she said the world was going to end in 12 years. So according to AOC, the world's going to end in 2031. So AOC, if she was ever elected president, could never fulfill a single term in office. <laughs> um, so I don't necessarily think there should be a lower limit. No. Now, granted, I don't think young candidates are likely to be elected. Um, I didn't think we would have this old of a candidates up at the stage. I, I said in early on that I thought Democrats do really well when they have a young candidate, um, a, a younger candidate that's representative, a new generation, um, you know, like like Obama, like Clinton, like Kennedy. Um, but, you know, I, I I thought Biden was a, was a terrible choice by the Democratic Party, but he may have just enough in the tank to win because really this election is ultimately a referendum on Trump. Um, Poway Don says, how about if you qualify for Social Security, you can't run for president? That's a funny one. Um, Pete Neal says, I ran on the premise of representative government, and I believe that two candidates are running with that same focus. No, I'm not a servant. Yeah, a representative government makes sense. Servant is a public servant. It, it, it's a, it has a context that's sort of menial, subservient, um, obedient, um, like like a uh, slave might be a little too strong of a term, but definitely a lower powered person. Um, Pete Neal goes on to say by representative, I mean, I collate the desires of the citizens and speak in accordance with the statistical population of desires. And Pete, you've talked a lot about that. I know you ran on that platform in 2018 for Poway city council, and I'm hopeful you're going to run again in 2022 and share that. And I think, yeah, a, a, an elected politician as a representative, that's a good term. Um, but a public servant, I mean, I mean, I, I saw this other context to the word servant that was interesting. Nowadays, calling someone who does those things a servant has an insulting connotation. If you think your hard work gets no respect, you might feel like a servant. But people who work for government like to be called public servants because they serve the good of the people and not themselves. Well, that's not true because they are self-interested. They want high pay. They've got unions that are negotiating for more and more pay. That's why the teachers have a union at Poway Unified and the, and the classified workers have a, have a union because they're lobbying for more and more money. And they call themselves public servants. And I think they do that to appeal to the altruistic mindset of voters because it sounds good. Well, they're just there for us. They're there to help us. And in some cases they do, but in a lot of cases they have power and control and they do things that really piss off people. And whether or not you agree or disagree with the Poway Road project, they pissed off a lot of people and um, they have uh, great power to do that. I'm a supporter uh, of the construction on Poway Road for a number of other reasons, for property rights reasons and, you know, for uh, housing crisis reasons and, and and a whole other set of issues. But uh, and I'm also supportive of construction at the farm um, in Poway for the same reasons. Uh, but. The fact is, is that the, the city government has a tremendous amount of power. That's the whole point of running for office. So you have the power to do that. So then it got me to this point about thinking is do you consider yourself a servant in your personal life or in your business life? And, you know, it's funny because for me, um, I was raised as an Irish Catholic and and um, 
you know, a, a lot of the Catholicism, a lot of altruism is kind of taught there, right? I, I went to a Catholic school from first to eighth grade, um, you know, from the money that my, that I, my family got from talking about social security when my, my father was killed when I, my mom was pregnant with me. So from that money that came from that, we were able to use that to put me into a Catholic school, first through eighth grade. And so I had a lot of this indoctrination about being a servant. Um, in some cases, a servant to God, um, but that, that's a big part of the philosophy of the mindset. And, you know, it, it affects you as an adult. You know, you, you think that way. And then it, for me as a business person, when I first started my business, I had my clients and I, when I got started. But then I know that for me, when, when I was building my business, I was behaving like a servant. And I was taking on clients I never should have taken on. You know, if you think about prospective customers, you've got your A, B, C, and D customers, right? The A customers that are wonderful, the work is good, the pay is great, they pay you on time, the money is big, the work is good but not a hassle, and it's right in your sweet spot. Those are A customers. I had those. But then as I built my business, you start taking on B customers and C customers, and even what I'll call D-level customers, customers that just need your help and are desperate, that don't have money to spend, and their projects are going to take so much time to do. And then, you know, when you have this mindset of being a servant, you end up taking them on as clients, and you make mistakes, and you realize you probably shouldn't have taken them on to begin with. And I had to learn that. Because as I was growing my business, you know, you, you're kind of hungry for revenue. You want to take on as much as you can take on. Um, but it ends up sidetracking you. And it can, be, it can be damaging for a business person to think like a servant. Because you have to be self-interested. That doesn't mean you need to screw other people. But you need to find cases where you're going to win as well. And so um, what I did is um, I began to change my mindset. And I no longer thought like a servant because I think being a servant isn't right. <laughs> uh, being a public servant, that's a, that's a lie. They're not servants. Um, and so what I did is I said in my business, I, I needed to gain more control and more focus over my business. And so what I did is I invested in my business and I implemented addition by subtraction. I've talked about that at the beginning of the podcast. I've talked about addition by subtraction, a lot of my earlier podcasts where I'm going through all my stuff, cleaning things out and subtracting things. I did the same thing in my business. I subtracted bad clients. I subtract, subtracted categories of my business that were not profitable or not profitable enough. And I, I was able to release myself from the mindset of being a servant. And it greatly helped me. And it got me on track. And it got me focused. And I was, my business performed better than it ever had. Um, I created a stop doing list. You ever do that? Like, I have a to-do list. Maybe you have a to-do list. The to-do list should be another podcast episode about how I have evolved with that. And I have my own system and everyone's kind of got a system, right? For managing a to-do list. I had to start creating a stop doing list. And then I'd have to one by one, check those things off and erase them and delete them. And it's, it, it's unbelievably empowering. And I still have a lot more to subtract in my business. There's some things I need to do as what well, there as well. 
It's powerful. I learned to say no. And saying no is huge power for you as an individual. It's huge power for you as a customer, or excuse me, as a business owner to say no to we're clients that aren't a good fit to politely say, we can't be of service for you, but I know someone who can and refer them. It took me a while to really get it. I know it sounds so plain as day now, but a lot of that was my pre-wiring as a young child of being a servant and wanting to please others rather than focusing on pleasing myself and pleasing others at the same time. Um, And it took me a while to do that. And I learned. I also learned that when I was at a point where I could say yes or no to projects, but I wasn't sure, should I take this client on or not? I'm not sure. I would always default to yes. Ah, Let's just take them on and we'll see how it goes. Well, now I've learned that if I'm still not sure, if I'm sure, I'll say no. But if I'm still not sure, I don't do anything. I just wait and I think and I eventually decide. But I don't push myself. I don't guilt myself into doing things I don't want to do anymore in my business and, and, and in many other aspects of my life. It's something I'm constantly working on. And I, cause I think a lot of it is just the way my brain was wired in the beginning as a servant. So it's, it's, it's different than service. Like being of service makes sense. Being a servant doesn't make sense. So, and I think this is another interesting way to think of it. And before I get to that, Pete Neal says, by the way, I would not run for power of office. Calypso gives me all the power I could ever wish for. Yeah. Pete's Corvette Calypso is a powerful beast. I'll tell you. And Pete, you know, you, you, the way you explained it. Yeah. You just want to be the conduit of the people in your district. If you're elected, not for power, but ultimately if you are elected, you will have the power to implement those things that those people want and have the power to implement things that other people in your district don't want. So you may not be in it for power, but ultimately you will have power. And really, really, if you think about it, if you're elected, you're doing it for power. I know you're not some evil, you know, James Bond villain doing it for power, um, but you're ultimately going to have the power to do what you think is right. So in the end, I think politicians, I don't think of them as public servants at all, although they like to call themselves that. I think Dave Grush is a good man. Dave Grush has a good heart. And I understand why he thinks of himself as a public servant. But I think we blend servant and service, and I think they're different. Because I think I like to think of the world as when I'm going about finding clients, building relationships, I think about the concept of win-win. I want a relationship where I win and my customer wins. I win and my family member wins. Um, I win and my neighbor wins. I want a relationship with my suppliers where I win and my supplier wins. I want win-win. But the notion of being a servant is not win-win. It's typically lose-win. The servant loses, so the other person with greater power wins. Now, sometimes you might say, well, servants, they get paid. Even for the menial labor they do, they're paid. So maybe it is win-win. Well, 
it's a weak win-win. I just watched Downton Abbey. Have you seen that? I just finally went through that whole series a few months ago. Really good show. Um, they had they had they had servants in that household, valets, which I don't know why we call them valet in America, but valet in England. They had valets and and handmaids for the men and women. They were servants. They were treated well in the TV show Downton Abbey. Are they always treated well? I don't know. Do they do menial labor? Yes. Is it win win? And Downton Abbey was presented as win-win, but I don't know if it always is. There were other characters on Downtown Abbey that had servants that it was definitely lose-win. So I always like to think in terms of win-win. And when I do that now, my perspective is totally different on how I go about choosing my clients. And now I think, what's in it for me? What's in it for my customer too? What's the win-win? Before, I would try to make it a win for my customer and then struggle and figure out how to do it as a business person. And I had the wrong approach and I had to learn. And it's been a great part of my learning process. And I know it sounds so utterly obvious that a business person should be self-interested, but I had a lot of that pre-wiring that I had to break down. And it took me a while, but I finally got there. Um, but then the ir- irony of all this is that politicians have power, right? They end up picking winners and losers, That used to be a frequent complaint from my friends on the right, the Republicans. But now Republicans do the same damn thing with the trade war is a great example. You know, they pick winners and losers. um, And in this case, you know, they're picking the winner, the American company, the loser, the um, importer, or in this case, the loser being the American consumer that has to pay higher prices. Politicians have great power to pick winners and losers. So they're not really public servants. Yeah, they build the roads and the infrastructure and the parks. And I get that, but they have great power to do those things. And they are self-interested. After all, many of them have, uh, many of them have, and are currently running for a future office. Previous Poway City Council people have run for a future office. Jan Goldsmith was the Was he the DA um, for San Diego County or the city attorney, I think, for San Diego, if I recall? Mayor Voss is running for higher office. Um, Wouldn't be surprised if um, other members of city council eventually run for for higher office. So, you know, city council people are self-interested, too. They're not doing it because they get no benefit. Um, They're doing it because it, it satisfies their needs. Nothing wrong with that, but it's true. Um, now, the funny thing is, is that when you saw the debate last night, Trump and Biden, did either of them strike you as a servant, as a public servant? <laughs> not in a million years, not in a million years, did either one of them strike you as that. Now, Biden tries to make himself sound that way, but he's not. I mean, Biden voted for the Iraq war. Biden voted for that terrible 1990s crime bill that threw people in prison. For, for ticky-tacky things, um, and, and cr- which created a lot of this racial strife and Black Lives Matter and, and all the unrest we see on the streets of, of you know, the United States and California and even here in Poway. We've talked about the Poway protesters. A lot of that, if you trace it back, is because of Biden and other people. Biden's just one in a long list. They're not public servants. Um, they are self-interested. Now, sometimes people are self-interested for good reasons and sometimes for immoral reasons. 
And we can debate that with each candidate, each politician. I think Dave Grush is in it for what he perceives to be moral reasons. And I have no reason to disagree with him on that. Dave Grush is a good guy. Um, but I don't think he's a public servant. He might think of himself as a public servant because he's performing a service and he is performing a service to a degree, a service to his constituents. But I don't think he's a servant. Ideally, the government is a servant to the people, but they're not. <laughs> they're they're more of a power base. So, OK, where we're at. Gee whiz, an hour and a half. Um, OK, so uh, another quick reminder, please like share, subscribe, um, share the love, um, you know, thumbs up on episodes is always welcome. If you think we deserve it, um, you know, we're really expanding our subscriber base on YouTube. It's wonderful. It's been growing aggressively. Uh, I love that. You know, we get a lot of downloads of the audio only podcasts on Apple podcasts and Stitcher and, and, uh, iHeartRadio. We're on most every popular podcast platform, uh, of course on YouTube as well. Um, so that's been going really, really well, and I can't do it without your support. Um, okay, and uh, and yeah, reach out to me on on social media. Love the conversation. Had some really con- good conversations with Kaylin Frank. That was good. Uh, city council people chiming in. Pat John says, "Great show today, John." Pat, thank you. Uh, hour and a half of uh, of me ranting, but. Also, I enjoy having your comments and questions on the live stream. It makes it a discussion, a little bit more interesting than just me on a soapbox. But I have a final quote. I always do. Um, And uh, this is a quote um, about the notion of being a servant. And And this is from Ayn Rand, who I quote from regularly. And she said, I am not the means to any end others may wish to accomplish. I am not a tool for their use. I am not a servant of their needs. I am not a bandage for their wounds. I am not a sacrifice on their altars. And that's from Ayn Rand. That's very powerful. And I I think what this really means is, is that she does not support a lose-win relationship. She doesn't want a relationship where she loses so someone else can win. What she's talking about and what I've been talking about is we need win-win relationships, win-win outcomes where, and when we can do that with service, where I provide service to you and then you pay me for that service at a fair wage that we agree on, but servant is different. Servant is lose-win where the, the lower person, the, the person with less power often loses so the other side can win. Or maybe the servant wins, but in a very, very weak way. And it's a weak win-win and not a really true win-win. Because you might say, well, the servant gets paid. But that may not be enough to make it a true win-win. Not necessarily just in how much they're paid, but how well they're treated and how well they're respected. That's a big part of win-win as well. So I've, I've, you know, it's taken me a long time. You know, I'm in my mid fifties and started my business on my own. I went on my own before I was 40, 39 in my forties. I struggled with this idea um, of making sure that I was pursuing win-win outcomes. And it took a great deal of deprogramming, but I got it right and I'm happy I did. Okay, Um, this is episode number 180 of the John Riley Project. Thank you for listening. 
Thank you for watching. Have a great weekend. I'm going to be doing more addition by subtraction in my, in my garage. I'm going to sell a guitar here in about an hour and a half, and I'm going to be happier, and I'm going to have a few more bucks in my pocket. More win-win. All right. We'll see you later, friends. Bye-bye. 